Chapter Sixteen of the Spoilers by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Sixteen, in which the truth begins to bear itself. It was nearly noon of the next day when Helen awoke to find that McNamara had ridden in from the creek and stopped for breakfast with the judge. He had asked for her, but on hearing the tale of the night's adventure would not allow her to be disturbed. Later he and the judge had gone away together. Although her judgment approved the step she had contemplated the night before, still the girl now felt a strange reluctance to meet McNamara. It is true that she knew no ill of him, except that implied in the accusations of certain embittered men, and she was aware that every strong and aggressive character makes enemies in direct proportion the qualities which lend him greatness. Nevertheless, she was aware of an inner conflict that she had not foreseen. This man who so confidently believed that she would marry him did not dominate her consciousness. She had ridden much of late, taking long, solitary gallops beside the shimmering sea that she loved so well, or up the winding valleys into the foothills where echoed the roar of swift waters or glinted the flash of shovel-blades. This morning her horse was lame, so she determined to walk. In her early ramble she had looked timidly askance at the rough men she met, till she discovered their genuine respect and courtesy. The most unkempt among them were often college-bred, although for that matter the roughest of the miners showed abundant consideration for a woman. So she was glad to allow the men to talk to her with the fine freedom inspired by the new country and its wide spaces. The wilderness breeds a chivalry all its own. Thus there seemed to be no danger abroad, though they had told the girl of mad dogs which roamed the city, explaining that the hot weather affects powerfully the thick-coated, shaggy malamutes. This is the land of the dog, and whereas in winter his lot is to labor and shiver and starve, in summer he loafs, fights, grows fat, and runs mad with the heat. Helen walked far, and returning chose an unfamiliar course through the outskirts of the town to avoid meeting any of the women she knew, because of that vivid memory of the night before. As she walked swiftly along she thought that she heard faint cries far behind her. Looking up she noted that it was a lonely, barren quarter, and that the only figure in sight was a woman some distance away. A few paces farther on the shouts recurred, more plainly this time and a gunshot sounded. Glancing back she saw several men running, one bearing a smoking revolver, and heard, nearer still, the snarling hubbub of fighting dogs. In a flash the girl's curiosity became horror, for, as she watched, one of the dogs made a sudden dash through the now-subdued group of animals and ran swiftly along the planking on which she stood. It was a handsome specimen of the Eskimo Malamute, tall, gray, and coated like a wolf, with the speed, strength, and cunning of its cousin. Its head hung low and swung from side to side as it trotted, the motion flecking foam and slapper. The creature had scattered the pack, and now, swift, menacing, relentless, was coming towards Helen. There was no shelter near, no fence, no house, save the distant one towards which the other woman was making her way. The men, too far away to protect her, shouted hoarse warnings. Helen did not scream nor hesitate. She turned and ran, terror-stricken, towards the distant cottage. 
She was blind with fright and felt an utter uncertainty that the dog would attack her before she could reach safety. Yes, there was the quick patter of his pads close up behind her. Her knees weakened. The sheltering door was yet some yards away. But a horse, tethered near the walk, reared and snorted as the flying pair drew near. The mad creature swerved, leaped at the horse's legs, and snapped in fury. Badly frightened at this attack, the horse lunged at its halter, broke it, and galloped away. But the delay had served for Helen, weak and faint, to reach the door. She wrenched at the knob. It was locked. As she turned hopelessly away, she saw that the other woman was directly behind her and was, in her turn, awaiting the mad animal's onslaught, but calmly a tiny revolver in her hand. "'Shoot!' screamed Helen. "'Why don't you shoot?' The little gun spoke, and the dog spun around, snarling and yelping. The woman fired several times more before it lay still, and then remarked calmly as she broke the weapon and ejected the shells. The caliber is too small to be good for much. Helen sank down upon the steps. "'How well you shoot!' she gasped. Her eyes were on the gray bundle whose death agonies had thrust it almost to her feet. The men had run up and were talking excitedly, but after a word with them the woman turned to Helen. "'You must come in for a moment and recover yourself,' she said, and led her inside. It was a cozy room in which the girl found herself, more than that, luxurious. There was a piano with scattered music and many of the pretty feminine things that Helen had not seen since leaving home. The hostess had stepped behind some curtains for an instant and was talking to her from the next room. "'That is the third mad dog I have seen this month. Hydrophobia is becoming a habit in this neighborhood.' She returned, bearing a tiny silver tray with decanter and glasses. "'You're all unstrung, but this brandy will help you, if you don't object to a swallow of it. Then come right in here and lie down for a moment, and you'll be all right.' She spoke with such genuine kindness and sympathy that Helen flashed a grateful glance at her. She was tall, slender, and with a peculiar undulating suggestion in her movements, as though she had been bred to the clinging folds of silken garments. Helen watched the charm of her smile, the friendly solicitude of her expression, and felt her heart warm towards this one kind woman in Nome. "'You're very good,' she answered. "'But I'm all right now. I was badly frightened. It was wonderful your saving me.' She followed the other's graceful motion as she placed her burden on the table, and in doing so gazed squarely at a photograph of Roy Glenister. "'Oh!' Helen exclaimed, then paused as if it flashed over her who this girl was. She looked at her quickly. Yes, probably men would consider the woman beautiful with that smile. The revelation came with a shock, and she arose trying to mask her confusion. "'Thank you so much for your kindness. I'm quite myself now, and I must go.' Her change of face could not escape the quick perceptions of one schooled by experience in the slights of her sex. Times without number Cherry Malotte had marked that subtle, scornful change in other women, and reviled herself for heeding it but in some way this girl's manner hurt her worst of all. She betrayed no sign, however, save a widening of the eyes and a certain fixity of smile as she answered. "'I wish you would stay until you are rested, Miss—' She paused with outstretched hand. "'Chester, my name is Helen Chester. I'm Judge Stillman's niece,' hurried the other in embarrassment. Cherry Malotte withdrew her proffered hand, and her face grew hard and hateful. "'Oh, so you are Miss Chester, and I saved you!' 
She laughed harshly. Helen strove for calmness. "'I'm sorry you feel that way,' she said coolly. "'I appreciate your service to me.' She moved towards the door. "'Wait a minute. I want to talk to you.' Then, as Helen paid no heed, the woman burst out bitterly. "'Oh, don't be afraid. I know you are committing an unpardonable sin by talking to me, but no one will see you, and in your code the crime lies in being discovered. Therefore you're quite safe.' That's what makes me an outcast. I was found out. I want you to know, however, that, bad as I am, I'm better than you, for I'm loyal to those that like me, and I don't betray my friends. I don't pretend to understand you, said Helen coldly. Oh, yes, you do. Don't assume such innocence. Of course it's your role, but you can't play it with me. She stepped in front of her visitor, placing her back against the door while her face was bitter and mocking. The little service I did you just now entitles me to a privilege, I suppose, and I'm going to take advantage of it to tell you how badly your mask fits. Dreadfully rude of me, isn't it? You're in with a fine lot of crooks, and I admire the way you've done your share of the dirty work, but when you assume these scandalized, super-virtuous airs it offends me. Let me out. I've done bad things, Cherry continued unheedingly, but I was forced into them usually and I never deliberately tried to wreck a man's life just for his money. "'What do you mean by saying that I have betrayed my friends and wrecked anybody's life?' Helen demanded hotly. "'Bah! I had you sized up at the start, but Roy couldn't see it. Then Struve told me what I hadn't guessed. A bottle of wine, a woman, and that fool will tell all he knows. It's a great game McNamara's playing, and he did well to get you in on it, for you're clever, your nerve is good, and your make-up is great for the part.' I ought to know, for I've turned a few tricks myself. You'll pardon this little burst of feeling, professional pique. I'm jealous of your ability, that's all. However, now that you realize we're in the same class, don't look down on me hereafter. She opened the door and bowed her guest out with elaborate mockery. Helen was too bewildered and humiliated to make much out of this vicious and incoherent attack, except the fact that Cherry Malotte accused her of a part in this conspiracy which everyone seemed to believe existed. Here again was that hint of corruption which she encountered on all sides. This might be merely a woman's jealousy. And yet she said Struve had told her all about it, that a bottle of wine and a pretty face would make the lawyer disclose everything. She could believe it from what she knew and had heard of him. The feeling that she was groping in the dark, that she was wrapped in a mysterious woof of secrecy, came over her again as it had so often of late. If Struve talked to that other woman, why wouldn't he talk to her? She paused, changing her direction towards Front Street, revolving rapidly in her mind as she went her course of action. Cherry Malotte believed her to be an actress. Very well. She would prove her judgment right. She found Struve busy in his private office, but he leaped to his feet on her entrance and came forward, offering her a chair. "'Good morning, Miss Helen. You have a fine collar, considering the night you passed. The judge told me all about the affair, and let me state that you're the pluckiest girl I know.' She smiled grimly at the thought of what made her cheeks glow, and languidly loosened the buttons of her jacket. "'I suppose you're very busy, you lawyer-man?' she inquired. "'Yes, but not too busy to attend to anything you want.' "'Oh, I didn't come on business,' she said lightly. I was out walking and merely sauntered in. Well, I appreciate that all the more, he said, in an altered tone, twisting his chair about. I'm more than delighted. 
She judged she was getting on well from the way his professionalism had dropped off. "'Yes, I get tired of talking to Uncle and Mr. McNamara. They treat me as though I were a little girl.' "'When do you take the fatal step?' "'What step do you mean?' "'Your marriage. When does it occur? You needn't hesitate,' he added. "'McNamara told me about it a month ago.' He felt his throat gingerly at the thought, but his eyes brightened when she answered lightly, "'I think you are mistaken. He must have been joking.' For some time she led him on adroitly, talking of many things in a way to make him wonder at her new and flippant humor. He had never dreamed she could be like this, so tantalizingly close to familiarity, and yet so mattingly aloof and distant. He grew bolder in his speech. "'How are things going with us?' she questioned, as his warmth grew pronounced. "'Uncle won't talk, and Mr. McNamara is as close-mouthed as can be lately.' He looked at her quickly. "'In what respect?' She summoned up her courage and walked past the ragged edge of certainty. "'Now don't try to keep me in short dresses, too. It's getting wearisome. I've done my part, and I want to know what the rest of you are doing.' She was prepared for any answer. "'What do you want to know?' he asked cautiously. "'Everything. Don't you think I can hear what people are saying?' "'Oh, that's it. Well, don't you pay any attention to what people say.' She recognized her mistake and continued hurriedly. Why shouldn't I? Aren't we all in this together? I object to being used and then discarded. I think I'm entitled to know how the scheme is working. Don't you think I can keep my mouth shut? Of course, he laughed, trying to change the subject of their talk. But she arose and leaned against the desk near him, vowing that she would not leave the office without piercing some part of this mystery. His manner strengthened her suspicion that there was something behind it all. This dissipated, brilliant creature knew the situation thoroughly, and yet, though swayed by her efforts, he remained chained by caution. She leaned forward and smiled at him. "'You're just like the others, aren't you? You won't give me any satisfaction at all.' "'Give, give, give,' said Strew cynically. "'That's always the woman's cry. Give me this, give me that. Selfish sex. Why don't you offer something in return? Men are traitors, woman usurers. You are curious, hence miserable.' I can help you, therefore I should do it for a smile. You ask me to break my promises and risk my honor on your caprice. Well, that's womanlike, and I'll do it. I'll put myself in your power, but I won't do it gratis. No, we'll trade. It isn't curiosity, she denied indignantly. It is my due. No, you've heard the common talk and grown suspicious, that's all. You think I know something that will throw a new light or a new shadow on everything you have in the world and you've worked up to such a condition that you can't take your own people's word. And, on the other hand, you can't go to strangers, so you come to me. Suppose I told you I had the papers you brought to me last spring in that safe, and that they told the whole story, whether your uncle is unimpeachable, or whether he deserved hanging by that mob. What would you do, eh? What would you give to see them? Well, they're there and ready to speak for themselves. If you're a woman, you won't rest till you've seen them." will you trade? Yes, yes, give them to me, she cried eagerly, at which a wave of crimson rushed up to his eyes, and he rose abruptly from his chair. He made towards her, but she retreated toward the wall, pale and wide-eyed. Can't you see, she flung at him, that I must know? He paused. Of course I can, but I want a kiss to bind the bargain, to apply on account. He reached for her hand with his own hot one, 
but she pushed him away and slipped past him towards the door. "'Suit yourself,' said he, "'but if I'm not mistaken you'll never rest till you've seen those papers. I've studied you, and I'll place a bet that you can't marry McNamara nor look your uncle in the eye till you know the truth. You might do either if you knew them to be crooks, but you couldn't if you only suspected it. That's the woman. When you get ready, come back. I'll show you proof, because I don't claim to be anything but what I am, Wilton Struve, bargainer of some mean ability. When they come to inscribe my headstone, I hope they can carve thereon with truth. He got value received. You're a panther, she said loathingly. Graceful and elegant brute that, he laughed. Affectionate and full of play, but with sharp teeth and sharper claws. To follow out the idea which pleases me, I believe the creature owes no loyalty to its fellows and hunts alone. Now, when you've followed this conspiracy out and placed the blame where it belongs, won't you come and tell me about it? That door leads into an outer hall which opens into the street. No one will see you come or go. As she hurried away she wondered dazedly why she had stayed to listen so long. What a monster he was! His meaning was plain, had always been so from the first day he laid eyes upon her, and he was utterly consciousless. She had known all this, and yet in her proud, youthful confidence, and in her need every hour more desperate and urgent to know the truth, she had dared risk herself with him. Withal the man was shrewd and observant, and had divined her mental condition with remarkable sagacity. She had failed with him, but the girl now knew that she could never rest till she found an answer to her questions. She must kill the suspicion that ate into her so. She thought tenderly of her uncle's goodness to her, clung with despairing faith to the last of her kin. The blood ties of the Chesters were close, and she felt in dire need of that lost brother who was somewhere in this mysterious land, need of some one in whom ran the strain that bound her to the weak old man up yonder. There was McNamara, but how could he help her? How much did she know of him, this man who was now within the darkest shadow of her new suspicions? Feeling almost intolerably friendless and alone, weakened both by her recent fright and by her encounter with Struve, Helen considered as calmly as her emotions would allow and decided that this was no day in which pride should figure. There were facts which it was imperative she should know, and immediately. Therefore, a few minutes later, she knocked at the door of Cherry Malotte. When the girl appeared, Helen was astonished to see that she had been crying. Tears burn hottest and leave plainest trace in eyes when they come most seldom. The younger girl could not guess the tumult of emotion the other had undergone during her absence, the utter depths of self-abasement she had fathomed, for the sight of Helen and her fresh young beauty had roused in the adventurous a very tempest of bitterness and jealousy. Whether Helen Chester were guilty or innocent, how could Glenister hesitate between them? Cherry had asked herself. Now she stared at her visitor inhospitably and without sign. "'Will you let me come in?' Helen asked her. I have something to say to you. When they were inside, Cherry Malotte stood and gazed at her visitor with inscrutable eyes and stony face. It isn't easy for me to come back, Helen began, but I felt that I had to. If you can help me, I hope you will. You said that you knew a great wrong was being done. 
I have suspected it, but I didn't know, and I've been afraid to doubt my own people. You said I had a part in it, that I'd betrayed my friends. Wait a moment, she hurried on, at the other's cynical smile. Won't you tell me what you know, and what you think my part has been? I've heard and seen things that make me think, oh, they make me afraid to think, and yet I can't find the truth. You see, in a struggle like this, people will make all sorts of allegations, but do they know, have they any proof, that my uncle has done wrong? Is that all? No, you said Struve told you the whole scheme. I went to him and tried to cajole the story out of him, but... She shivered at the memory. What success did you have? inquired the listener, oddly curious for all her cold dislike. Don't ask me, I hate to think of it. Cherry laughed coolly. So... Failing there, you came back to me, back for another favor from the waif. Well, Miss Helen Chester, I don't believe a word you've said, and I'll tell you nothing. Go back to your uncle and the raw-boned lover who sent you, and inform them that I'll speak when the time comes. They think I know too much, do they? So they have sent you to spy. Well, I'll make a compact. You play your game, and I'll play mine. Leave Glenister alone and I'll not tell on McNamara. Is that a bargain? No, 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 can't you see? That's not it. All I want is the truth of this thing. Then go back to Struve and get it. He'll tell you. I won't. Drive your bargain with him. You're able. You've fooled better men. Now see what you can do with him. Helen left, realizing the futility of further effort, though she felt that this woman did not really doubt her, but was scourged by jealousy till she deliberately chose this attitude. Reaching her own house, she wrote two brief notes and called in her Jap-boy from the kitchen. "'Fred, I want you to hunt up Mr. Glenister and give him this note. If you can't find him, then look for his partner and give the other to him.' Fred vanished, to return in an hour with the letter for Dextry still in hand. "'I don't catch this feller,' he explained. "'Young man's say he gone. Come back maybe one, two. Eleven days. Did you deliver the one to Mr. Glenister? Yes, ma'am. Was there an answer? Yes, ma'am. Well, give it to me. The note read, Dear Miss Chester, A discussion of a matter so familiar to us both as the Anvil Creek controversy would be useless. If your inclination is due to the incidents of last night, pray don't trouble yourself. We don't want your pity. I am your servant, Roy Glenister. As she read the note Judge Stillman entered, and it seemed to the girl that he had aged a year for every hour in the last twelve, or else the yellow afternoon light lined the sagging hollows and haggard lines of his face most piteously. He showed in voice and manner the nervous burden under which he labored. "'Alec has told me about your engagement, and it lifts a terrible load for me. I'm mighty glad you're going to marry him. He's a wonderful man, and he's the only one who can save us.' "'What do you mean by that?' "'What are we in danger of?' she inquired, avoiding discussion of McNamara's announcement. "'Why, that mob, of course. They'll come back. They said so. But Alec can handle the commanding officer at the post, and thanks to him we'll have soldiers guarding the house hereafter. "'What? They won't hurt us.' "'Tut-tut, I know what I'm talking about. We're in worse danger now than ever, and if we don't break up those vigilantes there'll be bloodshed, that's what.' They're a menace, and they're trying to force me off the bench so they can take the law into their own hands again. That's what I want to see you about. They're planning to kill Alec and me, so he says, and we've got to act quick to prevent murder. 
Now, this young Glenister is one of them, and he knows who the rest are. Do you think you could get him to talk? I don't think I quite understand you, said the girl through whitening lips. Oh, yes, you do. I want the names of the ringleaders so that I can jail them. You can worm it out of that fellow if you try. Helen looked at the old man in a horror that at first was dumb. You ask this of me? she demanded hoarsely at last. Nonsense, he said irritably. This isn't any time for silly scruples. It's life or death for me, maybe, and for Alec, too. He said the last craftily, but she stormed at him. It's infamous. You're asking me to betray the very man who saved us not twelve hours ago. He risked his life for us. It isn't treachery at all. It's protection. If we don't get them, they'll get us. I wouldn't punish that young fellow, but I want the others. Come now, you've got to do it. But she said, no, firmly, and quietly went to her own room where, behind the locked door, she sat for a long time, staring with unseeing eyes, her hands tight clenched in her lap. At last she whispered, I'm afraid it's true. I'm afraid it's true. She remained hidden during the dinner hour and pleaded a headache when McNamara called in the early evening. Although she had not seen him since he left her the night before, bearing her tacit promise to wed him, yet how could she meet him now with the conviction growing on her hourly that he was a master rogue? She wrestled with the thought that he and her uncle, her own uncle who stood in the place of a father, were conspirators. And yet, at the memory of the judge's cold-blooded request that she should turn traitress, her whole being was revolted. If he could ask a thing like that, what other heartless, selfish act might he not be capable of? All the long, solitary evening she kept her room, but at last, feeling faint, slipped downstairs in search of Fred, for she had eaten nothing since her late breakfast. Voices reached her from the parlor, and as she came to the last step she froze there in an attitude of listening. The first sentence she heard through the close-drawn curtains banished all qualms at eavesdropping. She stood for many breathless minutes drinking in the plot that came to her plainly from within, then turned, gathered up her skirts, and tiptoed back to her room. Here she made haste madly, tearing off her house-clothes and donning others. She pressed her face to the window and noted that the night was like a close-hung velvet pall, without a star in sight. Nevertheless, she wound a heavy veil about her hat and face before she extinguished the light and stepped into the hall. Hearing McNamara's good night at the front door, she retreated again while her uncle slowly mounted the stairs and paused before her chamber. He called her name softly, but when she did not answer, continued on to his own room. When he was safely within she descended quietly, went out, and locked the front door behind her placing the key in her bosom. She hurried now, feeling her way through the thick gloom in a panic, while in her mind was but one frightened thought. I'll be too late. I'll be too late. End of chapter 16 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com